five four three two one zero and liftoff. Dispatches, a production of Blur Bank, is an in-depth look at those living artistic lives. Each episode will feature photographs and audio interviews with narrative pioneers who have taken creativity and publishing in their own hands. From artists to authors, photographers to philosophers, Dispatches will reveal the faces and foundations of those who lead the creative way. Hey everyone and welcome to the latest episode of Dispatches and I'm in Dana Point, California today with a longtime friend and someone who's uh, kind of a hero of mine since the time I met him, Art Brewer. How you doing today? I'm hanging in there. Yeah, Art is an artist and a photographer and uh, does a variety of things in the world, all of which are very good. And uh, I've got some strange questions for you. Some came from me and some came from other people that I culled, which I thought was interesting, including Napper. I got a question from him. But um, when I, if I ran into you on the street, how would you describe when someone says, who are you, what do you do? Um, it depends on my mood at the time. <laughs> okay, let's say good mood. Uh, good mood? Um, I'll tell them I'm a photographer. And, and when you say you're a photographer, because I sometimes do the same thing, what's the fo- do you get a follow-up question? Um, yeah, usually what kind of photography I do. Exactly. And then that's where it gets really interesting because if you really want to see a reaction, you say something like, I photograph weddings or I photograph like, you know, pets and kids and you'll see them spin and run in the other direction. But what do you say when they when they say what, what kind? Well, my latest one is uh, I take photographs like your mom would on her iPhone. And what kind of response does that get? A question. And are you a big iPhone fan? No. You're not? Okay. All right. I'm not either. So I think, though, that because we said that and that's been recorded, that we're probably on a short list. Yeah, I find that the iPhone is probably the hardest thing to photograph with that I've ever dealt with. And just it, um, I'm using a politically incorrect word, but uh, to me, it's a little retarded. Okay. And just because of the limitations of the lens and the thing, or you just don't like what it does to you as a photographer? I, I don't, yeah, I don't like the feel of it. It's, you know, it fits better on my ear instead of in my, front of my eye. Yeah, I, I agree. I, um, I think it's a really easy way to, to make pictures, but they're not pictures that I really have this, for whatever reason, I don't have the same relationship with those pictures that I do with many of the other pictures that I make. No, they're not, they're not important. They're just, you know, it, it's more of a, a tool if you get in a car accident, you know, something to take a picture of the accident with. You know, it's funny because I, we are on some sort of short list now. I guarantee it. There's like uh, NSA is like putting us on a short list for, for not liking the iPhone. But um, <laughs> Good. so I'm going to say a name and you, and you give me one word or a minimal return here on words in terms of who these people are. What do, what do you think when, I, when you hear this name? The first one is um, Henri Cartier-Bresson. A master. How about Peter Beard? An artist. How about Jacques Cousteau? Diver. Jeff Hornbacher. Nets. Avedon. Brilliant. Donald Trump. Crazy. Snowden. Smart. Kelly Slater. Great. And finally, Annie Leibovitz. Tough one. Tough one. All right. That's fair. I feel the same way. I, when I see her early black and white photography of the Rolling Stones tour, I absolutely love it. That was like phenomenal work. And I think, I think for me, she's an easy person to kind of take a shot at, 
but she's done an amazing thing and I th she's done a lot of great work and I think what's interesting about her is her work transcends into the general public and I think when the general public thinks of photography, it's filtered through people like her, which good or bad I think is, you know, at least they're filtering through photography. It has great production value. That's what I see now. It's, uh, you know, everything's built and made. Yeah. Um, it's not something that's off the top of her head. And I think uh, one of the, the question that, that Napper had for you, which I'm going to jump ahead and then go back, was the parallels between the sort of absolute explosion of surf culture becoming mainstream and photography becoming digitized. Are there any parallels that run in your mind between those two things? Yeah, overwhelming. You know, uh, it, it's everybody is a surfer and everybody is a photographer. It's uh, it's just sort of gone out the window. I remember I met you in the late 90s. I worked for Kodak, and I, my job at Kodak was to get people who were shooting Fuji or Ilford or Agfa to use Kodak. And I didn't really know anything about the surf industry. I'm not from California, and I came out here, and I was at one of the surf magazines. I don't remember who I was talking to, but they said, well, if you want to get people to use Kodak film, you got to get Art Brewer to use Kodak film. And I was like, who's Art Brewer? So they told me who you were, and I figured it out. And then I went to the Pipe Masters. Uh, the first year, Amy and I both went to the Pipe Masters. Right. And I remember there was a core of about 50 people that were shooting that. And they were mostly people that shot both land and from the water as well. Right. And within 10 years of going back to the Pipe Masters, there was the people on the beach with like the 600s. There were just hundreds and hundreds of, of people shooting. So... This, tr this transition of the explosion in surfing and photography, I guess it was to some degree unavoidable. Ultimately, where do you think that leads us in as being photographers? Um, I think it devalues some of our work and in other cases it takes our work and makes it more valuable. It just, uh, you know, the old stuff versus the new stuff, it's, it's so different. It, uh, it's almost easier to get, and it's a simpler process where I think the, the older material, the working with tangible film and things like that, I can go back and look at something that's 20 years old and that I really didn't like back then. All of a sudden, I like it now because it, uh, it has some magic to it, which I well, think digital drops out. To my right here, there are boxes of negatives that you guys were going through when I came in here. Yeah, I feel the same of going back and I started shooting in late 80s and I can immediately have that stuff in my hands and see it in a really different way. Um, so you've been doing this for 50 years, roughly, give yep. or take. And <laughs> this was not something, uh, you know, you do something for 50 years that's really a part of who you are, not just really a profession, I don't think. But when you started this... I want to talk about an archive, what an archive means to you, the beauty of an archive and the importance of an archive. And the reason I bring that up is that I am somebody who really enjoys having an archive as well. Mine is probably minuscule compared to yours, and I've never done anything for any length of time. But the idea of going back to the work and doing something with it decades later or having this sort of historical document, I find really important. But when I write about archiving, I get a lot of sort of flack from, from different generations of people who think, well, archives don't matter. It's about right now. It's about getting your work out today, right this minute, in front of as many people as possible, and what happens tomorrow really doesn't matter. How do you feel about having an archive, and how important is it to you? Oh, I think the archive's everything. You know, the thing is to get it pared down to where it's manageable. Um, 
of course, everything's immediate in this day and age, and everybody wants to get their image out right away. But, um, you know, I, I think that they don't really put any thought into it when it you do something like that. It just it's thrown out there, and it's sort of, you know, aimless or, you know, it's you're just exposing yourself. It, it's all hype. It's like... Uh, you know, extra, extra on TV, you know, who we sell in today or uh, how we sell in it. Um, I think, you know, images that stand the test of time are really the ones that are going to become the, the icons in our, our future. I mean, people will always look back to that. And I think that's where the archive comes in. Do you remember the first year that you started taking pictures? Yeah. Now, when I started shooting, and I was talking to somebody the other day, I, there's a couple of people that I went to school with that I'm still in contact with, and we were talking, and I remember saying to them that I don't remember a single time when I was in school, and I got out of school in 1992, I don't remember a single conversation during the time I was in school about being rich or famous from photography. In fact, we all looked around at each other and thought, how are we ever going to make a living? We're probably going to have to do something else to make a living, and then we'll do photography on the side. So. To, to have a career in this was kind of a pipe dream that none of us thought we would ever have. When you picked up a camera, it had to be even more so in that direction because we're talking in the time frame, there probably weren't photography galleries on, on every corner and magazines publishing all this stuff. So why did you do it? I was obsessed with photography. Um, from the first time I picked up a camera, it was something that I, I had to do. I just felt, you know, it, it was off the top, you know, I'd draw, been into drawing and sculpture and jewelry making and made shoes and done all sorts of different crafts, pottery, and, but when I picked up the camera and I went out and, you know, surfing was part of it, I shot those first few frames uh, with a borrowed camera from a friend who wanted to borrow my surfboard, and uh, he went out on the surfboard and said, oh, yeah, watch my camera, but <laughs> you, you, you can shoot with it. So I ended up taking the camera and shot a roll and a half, and two days later I get my film back at uh, the local camera store, and that was it. I had to do it. I had to have a camera. What's, what was the payoff? I mean, what's, what it, it, and is the payoff back then the same as it is today? Yeah, basically, it was the seeing that you captured an image that nobody else had, something that was sort of special. Unique. Or, yeah, it was unique, and and other people showed interest in it. And I think, you know, that's part of what photography is really about, is because you can create these images that cause reactions to people. Um, it can be a good reaction, or it can be a bad reaction, or... You know, it's, it can be a shocking reaction, but it's sort of, it, you know, it can tell the truth. You know, you can also tell lies, too. But, yeah. uh, you know, there's some truth about photography, I think, and that's why I do it. Now, speaking about unique and rare and reactionary, tell us a little bit about Bunker. And was Bunker the first real long-form essay that you did? And did you know it was going to be that when you went into it? Um, so first of all, let's, who is this? Who is Bunker? <clears throat> well, Bunker Spreckles was heir to the Spreckles Sugar Fortune and Clark Gable's stepson. And I had met him 
1969 when just walking down the beach at Pipeline, uh, my first year over on the North Shore, he approached me and asked me if um, I'd take a picture of him, just out of the blue. <laughs> and he had this weird red board called a Nama board that was about six inches thick. And I think it was, uh, you know, five feet, 10 inches long and just very strange. It looked like an egg, but uh, sort of drawn out. And I took that picture of him and it had a really sort of weird light about it and uh, just real different. And that sort of started the, the relationship. Then uh, he says, oh, well, I want to go photograph down at Belzeland during a full moon. And I was going, okay, yeah, whatever. But uh, that never materialized. And then all of a sudden I didn't see him for... God, a couple years, but I had his um, address, and one of the photographs I'd taken, we did a, uh, a copy of it and cropped in on it, and we had this great portrait that was, you know, very dark on one side and very lit and, you know, had a warmth on the other. It was pretty classic, and uh, it had been submitted to modern photography, and they wanted to run it on the cover, but they needed a model release. Oh, yeah. And so I contacted him with a letter and, uh, you know, he responded and told me no. <laughs> and uh, so I basically sent him another letter that told him where to go and what a rich asshole he was, you know. And, and it's amazing that, that this dialogue was happening via U.S. Postal Service. Yes, I yeah. know. And, it, and this was like uh, when he had turned 21, the photograph was taken when he was 19. So it was like two years later. And then, you know, I sort of wrote it off and never saw him again and for at least a couple of years. Then I think it was in 73, I ran into him again over at a friend's house. And, um, you know, we talked and I sort of brought up the sore subject. And he goes, oh, well, we'll get over that or something like <laughs> And then uh, he started asking me if I wanted to go shoot some photographs on Kauai. I said, sure, why are you paying, you know? And he said, yeah, I'll pay your way, I'll fly over and feed you and, you know, and go surf and, you know, fart around. So that's what we did. And um, it was funny, the first time he got me over there in Kauai, he pulls out the original letter. He'd kept it. Oh, nice. And uh, shows it to me. I, and uh, he said that he was going through some issues at that time. It was between the devil and God. Um, he'd eaten a bunch of peyote and some mushrooms, and um, that's uh, the photograph sort of scared him, I think. He saw evil on one side and God on the other. Ah, uh, interesting. So he was having that type of a, a deal. But uh, anyway, we continued just, you know. And you spent a considerable amount of time with him over the years. Off, yeah, off and on. I'd go over for, you know, a weekend or four days and go shoot and go back to Oahu and, you know, do my regular stuff was just shooting and working. And was there ever, when you were doing these three, four day shoots, were you thinking in terms of long term, oh, hey, maybe I'll have a body of work on him at some point. Maybe I'll no, do a book. No, not, not just, at all. Okay. Not at all. And uh, that didn't happen until later on um, because in seven, late 74, he, you know, kept going, hey, what are you doing this next year? And I go, oh, I'm probably going down to Puerto Escondido, Mexico for the summer and go hang out. 
go shoot. And, that sounds fun. Yeah, catch some waves. Well, it was before it was real crowded, and it was pretty cool. But, um, you know, time went on. I was, you know, doing my weed abatement and the banana patches for this friend, uh, you know, to keep money in my pocket and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, uh, I'd seen Bucker a couple times, and he calls up and goes, hey, uh, you want to go to South Africa? And I went, oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Yeah. And I was always, I'll believe it when I see it. So, um, you know, you went. Every, everything went quiet, you know, for a while. Didn't hear anything. And then one day, all of a sudden, he calls me up. He goes, hey, you got a passport? I go, yeah. He goes, I want you to come to town. And uh, so I went into Honolulu from, I was living in the country. And um go to his apartment there, and uh, he goes, we're going down to uh, Pan Am office and bring your passport. I go, where are we going? He goes, we're going to South Africa. He goes, we're going to go travel around the world. We're going to take three months. And uh, I was still skeptical, but um, went down to Pan Am. He bought three first-class tickets around the world for his girlfriend, Ellie, and me and wow. himself and uh it was about three weeks later we took off and first stop was beverly hills and staying at the beverly hills uh, hotel chauffeur picks us up from playboy limousine service and he goes now we need to buy some more equipment so we go out and buy a you know bowl U super eight and all the century lenses and you know, the Miller fluid heads, and then we bulked up on some more still equipment. And you must have been freaking out. It was like, yeah, sort of like a kid in a toy shop, you know, just sort of going, well, I guess this is really happening. Now, did you have any sort of, at the time, were you like, I'm just going to do what I normally do, or did you have any kind of master plan for the photography, or did you, was this like a day-by-day kind of seat of the pants thing? It was sort of a day-by-day seat of the pants, you know. It, it was, uh, you know just go and you know see what happens yeah and you know i was gonna mix it up um between what i was shooting with film you know just dual tripods and you know housings for we didn't have housings for the the movie equipment but it's pretty much just for stills um but you know we managed to get what we needed and then headed out next stop was you know london but before we left L.A., he had me um, sign a contract with his lawyer. It was, uh, <laughs> it was Walter Landau. He was uh, known as the Checkered Demon. He was Clark Gable's lawyer. And all the, I wasn't being paid for this, uh, you know, but, but, but I was being taken care of. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I had 500 bucks cash to my name that uh, went with me. No credit cards, no nothing. Oh, no, just, yeah. Uh, but, but thinking back to what the Pan Am office must have been like at that time, that was back when travel and Pan Am was like it. You know, right. That was pro- there was probably an elegance to that that's long since departed. Right. And, you know, one of the things he did do is he took me to, you know, one of the better men's shops in Honolulu and, and outfitted me, made sure that I had, you know, the proper Jmar pants and a few things like that, so I would be presentable instead of just being in a pair of trunks and t-shirt, which was yeah. you know my normal, sure, my normal wear. But um, he, you know, we went on to London and he hooked up with uh, 
Pink Floyd and Steve Miller because he knew those guys and um, Les Dudak and you know we so we tripped around London for I think five days and then off on the plane to South Africa and uh, when we arrive in South Africa I mean like actually when we arrived in London I was in shock because we were getting off the plane and the paparazzi were there. For him? Yeah, for him and his girlfriend. Was that the first time you ever saw paparazzi? Yes, like that. I'd seen on television, you know, just like the press corps, but these were like, you yeah. know, the ones that chase movie stars and yeah. things like that. Much mellower than, than today. today. Yeah. But, uh, and then when we got to Johannesburg in South Africa, it was the same deal. And then from flying from Johannesburg to Durban, same MO, wow. and then you know, his picture and her picture in the newspapers. And, you know, he's telling him the story that, you know, he's a, a porn producer and, you know, his, his girlfriend's his star, the star. And he's just feeding him this line of bullshit yeah. the whole time. Yeah. And uh, I'm just like going, whoa, this, this is pretty bizarre. Life. Yeah. But uh, he, you know, took a full medical bag, you know, that he was given by his doctor he had two guns, a thirty-two Walther and a twenty-five caliber Walther, you know. You mean in his, like, carry-on bags? Yeah. 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 I mean. You got to love traveling yeah, those well, days. Yeah. <laughs> That's a awesome. Little, little different. <laughs> but uh, we went and picked up two Mercedes and, you know, stacked the surfboards. We had, you know, probably eight surfboards on those two cars. And, uh, hey, if you're going to travel, you might as well get a Mercedes. On the way in from Joburg, we met this guy, David Lansley, who was a pipe fitter who had just gotten out of prison in Australia and was working in South Africa. And uh, Bunker asked him if he wanted to work for him as a driver. So oh. he hired this guy just, just out of the blue, you know, and... Uh, so Langley's there, and, you know, we all have rooms at the Edward Hotel there in Durban. And they're about to have this contest there, the Durban 500, or the Gunston 500 was what it was. It was a cigarette manufacturer putting on this contest. All the good stuff was sponsored by the cigarette companies back yeah. then. Yeah. And um, there are a bunch of Hawaiian guys that were dark-skinned that, you know, you saw that— uh, they wouldn't let them in certain hotels and wouldn't wow. let them in certain areas of the beach because it was blacks and whites only. I mean, it was really sort of a weird cultural thing. But um, I'm still just like tripping on this. And I, I don't quite have my hook implanted in the, in the thing yet. But uh, all of a sudden, we're invited to this... Um, event it's like a dinner or banquet for the contest and uh i go i hang out for a few minutes and then, then i left went back to the hotel and i get uh he someone comes pounding up at my door and they were going freaking out because bunker had gotten a discussion with this uh shaper there about surfboards and this guy got real rude with him and Bunker called him out, and uh, the guy wanted to fight him. And so Bunker went and did this, flew over this table, <laughs> spread eagle, both legs, feet around this guy, knocked him to the floor. He's sitting in a chair. Bunker's got him pinned and has 
pulled out a buck knife and laid it to his throat and says, let's go outside and bring your friends. <laughs> and All that, right, little action. Uh, yeah, no, that, uh, I just went, holy shit. And Wild man. Yeah, and he'd been studying martial arts because he'd had some altercations on Kauai, and uh, he'd studied with, with uh, Professor Chow, who had uh, taught Ed Parker, who was considered the father of American martial arts. Um, he's Parker also taught Elvis and a bunch, oh, yeah, yeah. bunch of different, um, you know. Different folks. People, celebrities over the year. But um, so Bunker pins the guy down and, you know, walks him outside. Nothing goes down. And uh, next day in the paper, it's, you know, um, Clark Gable steps in, pulls knife on Durbin, you know, surfer. Yeah. And I'm just going, oh, God. And so the newspaper comes and interviews him and asks him why he was carrying a knife. He goes, well, I was just being a good boy scout. And, you know, like... You got to have your knife. Yeah, you yep. got to have your knife. And so the South African boy scouts got up in arms oh, and God. were all butthurt over it and said, we don't carry knives, you know, so... Guns? <laughs> <laughs> those came later. <laughs> but so, Bun Bunker ended up uh, basically tearing it up and he had this goatee so there's a picture of him with a, this goatee and uh, that next morning I see him he's shaved clean shaving and both him and I were about the same size and built at uh. the time and all of a sudden I'm starting to get like eyeballed and you know people he, are yeah think you're him and think I'm him and yeah. he I was just like sort of you know freaking out a little bit <laughs> Or the whole deal. So there's two, two questions that I have about this. One is, why do you think he wanted you to do this? And two, what ultimately happened with all this work? Um, he wanted, Bunker wanted me to, you know, just sort of see what I came up with, I think. And do you think and that was because, because he lived a pretty wild life, pretty crazy life. Yeah. Do you think that he knew that he was probably not long for the earth and that this would be a record of him or he just thought this is fun i like art i want to go make some pictures um i think it was a combination of things in some ways i think he didn't you know everybody thought he had millions of dollars i really don't believe that he had millions of dollars and i almost feel like maybe this was the the big hurrah oh, you okay. know that he was mm. Yeah, you know, gonna go. He's gonna wind down. Yeah, and see what uh, how far he could run with it was the deal, and so you know he just was extreme in everything. Whether it was his birthday party and he crashed both Mercedes down there, or you know um, the shooting the street lights out and in Durban from a moving car, and I mean it was. I was constantly worried that I was going to be arrested or yeah, yeah, put in jail and not get out with yeah. him. And we had a South African surfer cop who basically got on our tail and stuck with us the whole time. Oh, boy. Yeah, it was uh, really like a, a crazy, crazy, um, crazy trip. And I mean, I was hired and fired, you know, 40 times and... Um, at one point, he shot at me, and uh, and I quit. And you know, if I quit, I had to pay my own way back. Was the deal, but I didn't care. 
it was like I was just pushed beyond the brink. But now, now tell me something. Ultimately, I didn't know that. I didn't know it got that dicey, and I didn't know he shot at you, and I didn't know that like you were like, I don't care if I have to fly my own my own way home. I'm just curious, without knowing it, how being on an assignment like that so earlier in your career, considering that you shoot commercial work and you do a lot of big ad campaigns and things like that, where there's a million things that can potentially go wrong. It had to be great training in life in general, relationships, business, everything else. I mean, did it work that way or did you even oh, think about it? No, no. It, it was What I was learning is I was learning everything uh, about what I didn't want to do in my life. And, Interesting. Uh, and, and how to avoid being in trouble, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and that, that's real trouble. You know, yeah. and uh, it... it it just sort of carried on. I mean, it was so extreme. And I was getting the film processed as we were going, sending it to Kodak in, in Cape Town or into Joburg. And, uh, you know, processing the black and white in the bathrooms with Rodinal and, you know. I still was, do that. Yeah. I mean, I love it was it. still, it was nuts. Um, you know, I was just bringing everything with me. And I, I, at one point I, I clicked and I went, wow, I go, the stuff I've got is insane. It's good. You know, yeah, it's like, I, it wasn't, you know, it took me a little while, and then finally I had sort of this, I looked back on things and just went, holy shit, man. And I go, this stuff's serious. Yeah, that's you a know? real reportage. Yeah, in yeah. between the film, you know, and the stills. Well, to go back to the whole truth in photography thing. I mean, you had basically this guy's life un unveiling itself in front of you, completely unpredictable, but really what's there is the truth. These net, you can't lie from negatives. I mean, right. they're, they're there. Ultimately, this, this was published into... Yeah, it was uh, Surfing's Divine Prince of Decadence. It was uh, published by Tosh and Books, which just, it only covers a small portion and uh, of the material and it it covers more of an interview that Craig Stesick did with him because Rolling Stone was interested in uh, doing an article on him before he died um, and so we I, and then Craig had cut loose with all the the tape didn't want to be reminded of it and mm. so I inherited that and I had all the images here and I'd went through and you know early on I'd printed all the what I considered the best of the best, and mm -hmm. you know, s small silver prints. And uh, you still have a dark room? Yeah, I still have a dark All room. All right, yeah. that makes my heart warm. Yeah, it's filled full of storage stuff, but it's all right. It's still it's there. there. You yeah. could dig it out if you had to. Yeah, it's not that deep. So going back to something a second ago, um, you are known as surf photographer. You yeah. know, you're kind of the, one of the godfathers of surfing photography. But you also do all this other kind of work. Is it hard sometimes to get outside of that bubble because people want to look at you and go, okay, Art Brewer, and they, and they sort of use that mental drop-down menu, and they go, oh, yeah, that's the guy that shoots surfing. Yeah, a little bit. It was more so in the past than it is now. Okay. I mean, it really lent itself to doing a lot of the commercial water sports stuff, you know, yeah. for Sea-Doo and Yamaha and then getting into the Ski-Doo type situations. Um, and then it, it's a sport, so yeah. it sort of tied it in. It's kind of linked. Yeah, where, you know, Nike and they, they realized that, uh, if you had the chops to, you know, capture action that, uh, 
you could do it in surfing, then you should be able to do it in these other sports, which that's great. Sort of so, worked out so in a me. way, you were you do from time to time get pigeonholed, but at the same time, being such a so focused on one industry has allowed you to incorporate all these other clients in. Right. So you've lived a creative life for fifty plus years. Is living this is a very sensitive topic for me because when you think about living a creative life, is this a conscious decision that you think about on a daily basis? And, or is this just the only thing that you know how to do? Because I think creatives have a responsibility to the rest of the culture. I think we are the counterbalance to the mundane, to the routine, to the expected. I think we have a responsibility to do things that are not the norm and not the expected. You know, it's like you can do, Whatever you do in the world, you, the, the fact that you're an artist is a permission slip for you to do that. Whether it's right or wrong, you can say, you know, it's like how often when you were a little kid, when someone would do something weird and someone would say, oh, but he's an, that's an artist. And there'd be this almost like, oh, well, then they can do whatever they want. Do you think about being creative or is it just what you do, who you are? Um, I think about it, but I think it's just, you know, that's my life. You know, I wake up in the morning and, you know, I got to be wor working on some aspect of this, you know, this process. And when I go to bed at night or, you know, it's I'm constantly making notes to make sure that, that yeah, you know, I keep following through on certain things because the, the my process is endless. And, uh, you know, the material I have to work with is endless. It's like. Um, I'll be dead and gone before I could ever get everything done that I want to mm -hmm. do. And um, it, it's so obsessive. It's really sort of... How hard is it to live a creative life in 2015? Because this is an interesting thing. I was in Australia last year, and I was with um, a woman who runs or is part of what's called the Vivid Ideas Festival. And she was talking about the commercial value to society coming from the creative world, and it was always overlooked. The, industry, the governments looked at industry, and they looked at manufacturing, and they looked at medical, and all these things. But when it came to creativity, they were just like, oh, there's no value in that. And then they realized there's actually a lot of value that comes. And I think sometimes young creatives kind of think it's just a, a switch that you flip on, and you're going to be like commercially viable. But I think living creative life is really hard. I mean, it's a, it's a battle, I think, for anybody, especially today. It seems harder today than ever before. What do you, what do you think? Oh, I think it's crazy because um, it's so easy to get overlooked and you need to constantly keep changing um, the way you think or the way you work, the, what you show. Mm -hmm. um, and part of the reason that, you know, mundane photographs are now what are chic. Yeah. And, and there's so much of it. I mean, it's like, uh, it's a you tsunami know, of... shoot a, shoot a picture of a piece of paper and the paper's art, you know? So I still believe that, uh, there's still a lot of bad art in, mm -hmm. in this world. And, uh, but, it's considered good, so it's a, it's a lot like uh, you know the king running around with this uh, bitchin' outfit that someone made for him, but actually he's got his dick hanging out, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I, I think you just have to sort of you forge on one way or another. 
Would you rather be considered an artist or a photographer? Is there more advantage with one or the other? That's a tough one. Um, That's why I ask it. Yeah. I have, an, I have my, my definitive I think, answer to this. I think artist makes more sense to me because, um, you know, a photographer is just someone that operates a camera. And I think artist is, you know, the vision that's put into that camera. Yeah, takes it to, and puts it in a different place. Let's talk about books for a minute. What is, when I say photography book, what is that? Why, is, why are books important to people like you? Um, because they're tangible. There's something that you can hold, you feel it, you know. You can look at it, it gives you more depth. Um, it's not like looking at the computer and getting, you know. I think computers are, you know, looking at stuff online, it's interesting, but to me it's, it's really so one-dimensional. It's just, you know, it's a flat screen. I think with the book, too, when you see, if you, if you go to a good book publisher, Radius or Twin Palms or whoever it is, Tashin, and you look at the consideration that's put into each individual object, like there is nothing done by chance in a, in a printed photography book. They're too expensive. Right. So they everything have value. is thought. And that, to me, is why I, I love doing that. And to go back to the prior question, I think there's been clearly a, a crossover and a transition from art and photography. So a lot of photographers make the jump to the art world and they're in the stratosphere. There's like the art world seems to be collectively more cohesive than, than the photography world. So I think that there's a huge advantage and there's clearly, you know, you have the Richard Princes of the world and the Gerskys of right. the world that like made photographs, but suddenly the art world said, whoa, this is completely relevant. So I think it's exciting now as a, as a young, if I was a young photographer, I'd be aiming dead center at the art world over right. the photography world for sure. No, it's a smarter move. When you're shooting in the field, are you, do you think about publishing? Do you think about books or you just remain clear? Because sometimes I, because I do mostly essays, I, I get clouded and think, start thinking about covers and lead images and all that kind of crap. And I think it kind of dilutes the, the process. What yeah, I, no, I, I tend to, I'm thinking about the moment and what I'm working on it. You know, the, the book actually, I think comes afterwards. You know, I never really shot anything to, to build build a book from okay um you know i've i've actually done maybe one or two mm -hmm. with a rough idea but they're like really short um they're more like comics than they are what i consider a book are there any photography books that jump out at you like historically that you looked at and it's like the first book you looked first photo book you had or books that you have now that you look at on a regular basis mm -hmm. Besides all of mine, of course, which I'm sure are around here, front and center in the studio. No, they're all downstairs. My book book collection. Um, God, there's so many of them. I, you know, I've studied so many different styles of photography. Well, how about uh, photographers that you find inspiring? Um, probably, right now, there's a a Peter Beard book mm -hmm. that I have that is one of the most interesting to me because it uh, it's he's all over the place yeah and uh, I personally have met him and uh, you know that it's him you know you can just uh, pretty amazing character you know there's a tie-in between he and you and I 
if you remember, because you knew that I liked beard. And so you were at Andy Warhol's place on Montauk yes. photographing beard. Yep. And you gave me a print, okay. which I gave to David Fahey. David gave to to Peter and Peter drew and painted all over it, gave it back to Fahey. Fahey gave it back to me. And it's hanging in my bedroom in Costa Mesa. Nice. So there's an art, art brewer on the wall in Costa Mesa. I'm a huge Peter Beard fan as well. I think he's the first time I opened uh, the life and mis there was the adventure and misadventure of yeah. Peter Beard in Africa. I was like, okay, this is something different. I haven't seen this before. And I think ultimately one of the things when I talk to younger photographers is I always say the most important thing you can do is to develop a unique look, feel, content, style, which take, can, took me about 10 years to figure out what I was doing. But that, to me, when I look at Beard, is why it's so relevant, is that nobody else is making anything quite like that. And there are now 100 people who are copying what he's done. But there's so only, true. yeah, and it's not, you can't even get sort of remotely close. Because any, what people don't seem to realize is anytime you get even remotely close to that, anyone who knows him knows that you're copying Peter Beard. Right. Is ultimately that what you're doing when you pick up a camera is you're trying to find your unique voice, even after doing this for 50 years. Yeah, I'm, I try not to emulate or copy anybody else and you know i really sort of strive for that um it's it's tough it is you hard, know? especially when you look at a lot of work online it's hard to look and you get into the field and start thinking i've seen this i've seen this right and i think it's why i weaned myself off of the internet for the most part and i feel yeah, better it, it, yeah it's funny because i can look at the internet and all of a sudden it makes me feel ill <laughs> you know, it, it actually, you know, makes your stomach turn sometimes to see some, i not saying it's bad photography or anything, it's just, you know, it's, it's there's something that just, it's like sticking uh, little needles in you just to torture you. Yeah. Um, God. So what is the one thing, if you could go back and do over in your photography life? It could be a time frame that you would go back to. It could be something you missed that you would redo? What's the one thing you'd go back and change up? Mm. Really not much. That's I just, good. I would, uh, You've had a pretty amazing life. I, you know, I've worked on a series of images shot with a stereo camera for, mm -hmm. for since like the 70s. Wow. And I'm still, I don't do it all the time. It sort of comes and goes. And they're sort of like triptychs, but it's a different, whole different story. Mm -hmm. But I'm really obsessed with those. And now that, you know, I can take them and scan the negatives and yeah. put them into digital form, I can make these huge... Um, and your trusty flex-tight Hasselblad sitting right here, which I'm very jealous of. Yeah. What's the one thing you don't have that you really want or need? Can um, be any, that can be anything. Anything. <laughs> Money. <laughs> hey, that's valid. That's totally valid. Every, everything else falls in place. I mean, you know, it all seems to suffice. I'm not rich. Uh, never expected to be. I, you know, I don't have it too bad. You know, I, I work hard for what I do get. And uh, yeah, sorry about that. No, you're busy. See, I always leave the recorder going even when the phone's going That's off because fine. people don't understand, like in a photography That's... studio, how insane things are. Yeah. And like how often that's a part of, that's probably going off all day, every day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Thank you. That's always a blast to get to catch up with you, and uh, I wish I got to do it more. All right. I hope we didn't put anyone to sleep. No, I don't think so. I think this is good. We got just enough little book book content in there too to keep everyone happy, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. We're going to do a, one more little recording after this about art itself, and then um, and then I'm going to let you go and get okay. back to actual answering all those phone calls. One one of the things that uh, would be interesting is if more of the young people would read the day books of Edward Weston mm. and just you know compare it to what we what goes on now compared to what went on then it was like a totally different process you know it's interesting because one of the, one of my jobs for blurb is I go to art schools and I talk to students and I talk to faculty and when you go into a photography program or an art program it's so different today than what what I went through or what you went through and uh, it's easy for me, sometimes I kind of catch myself looking at it with a very, very skeptical kind of eye. And I think, oh, I'm kind of like the old fart guy now looking at the students. And it's a very different world. So, for example, they will, they kind of, the idea of commercial relevance is just built in from day one. There's, there's, there's talk of like galleries and book publishers before they've made a single photograph. They've chosen galleries and things. And it's different. And it's easy for me to look at that and say, well, that's kind of quirky. But I always kind of look at it and think, well, that's the filter of today. That's how, that's how things are. But I think there is something pretty interesting about the time that I came up and the time that you came up that anybody can learn from. And I think the really good students are the ones that don't rule things out. They just look. They look at the past, look at the future. And what's interesting is the, the real throwback and the real re-engagement with classic photography is coming from kids in their 20s who, who yeah. grew up with phones and said, well, this isn't anything new or different. What's new or different is, hey, tell me about that stereo camera that you're right. using. And they're reinstalling dark rooms and kids are coming back to it. So I think it's, a, it's an interesting time. I guess photography is in a constant state of evolution. But I feel lucky to have come up when I did sort of pre-noise of the Internet to be able to really learn to focus and do things like that. But I'm glad you're still, you're still doing it. I mean, you've got a lot of good work ahead of you. So... Don't sit here talking to me. Like, get off your ass and, and go do something. Go take stereo pictures. So thanks again for doing this. Thank you.